Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. We are continuing our study on inspiration. And we began last week looking at some evidences of divine inspiration. Now we know that when Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, he declared that God's word was inspired. It was God-breathed. And uh, we haven't even looked at that verse yet in our study. But Paul didn't mean breathed on. It means breathed out. It wasn't like they wrote it. They said, okay, God, here's what we come up with. Give us your approval and breathe on it. That's not what happened. God breathed it out. And, of course, Peter said uh, that no uh, interpretation, uh, no Bible interpretation is their their own doing. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. So the book itself, and I hate to even call it a book. It's more than that. The Bible uh, declares inspiration. But it's one thing to say something about it. Isn't that true? And another thing to find evidence that this has to be a divinely inspired book. Now, I think you know by now, no matter how hard you explain, no matter what the Bible says, uh, there will be critics who will never believe that man alone didn't write this book. And uh, this is not really part of our lesson tonight. But one of the books that give skeptics problem is the book of Daniel. Now, we all know about the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, we know about Daniel being cast in the lion's den and things like We know about the handwriting on the wall. And those are probably the most familiar stories from the book of Daniel. Uh, but once you leave those basic stories, we get into prophecy. And in chapter 12, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12, uh, chapter 9 is prayer uh, to God for repentance. But nonetheless... Daniel gives some very specific prophecies about world kingdoms. And skeptics said there's no way Daniel lived before that because it's too precise, uh, too detailed. So therefore, he must have, somebody lied and put an earlier date on the book of Daniel than he really is. And why is that? They don't want to believe God's word, okay? But, you know, we're talking about internal evidence that show us that this cannot be written by man alone. Now, was man involved? Sure they were. You know, book of Isaiah, book of Jeremiah, uh, and we can go on and on with that. So, again, uh, still, yeah, they didn't write what they wanted to write. They wrote as God moved them along. And in my opinion, I'm convinced that a lot of what they prophesied about, they didn't understand. They couldn't have. Uh, because even now, sometimes looking back, we have problems understanding it. And, uh, of course, a lot of that prophecy has already come true. But the, those that have not come true, guess what? They will, okay? They, uh, thank you. I mean, it's not over till it's over. So they are going to be coming true. So we, we began this last week looking at some evidences of divine inspiration. <clears throat> and one we talked about was the Bible, the freshness of God's Word. Now, now again, we're not going to go into a lot of detail. We did that last week. But think of how many times you read God's Word. Uh, I mean, I've been at this for over 30 years now, just as a pastor. And it never, ever gets stale. Every time I go to the Word of God, it is fresh. Uh, you know, Jesus said, my words, they are spirit and they are life. And they really are. And whenever we approach God's Word with a heart hungry for His Word, uh, a heart hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we're going to find something fresh all the time. In the Word of God. And I want to declare tonight, there is no other book like that. No other book like that. The second thing we talked about last week is the fact that it's never been exhausted. Never, uh, the contents have never been searched out completely. And it's been studied, it's been preached, it's been dissected, and there's still more we are learning about the Word of God, and not just about the Word of God, but from the Word of God. Now, remember, whenever you're reading the Bible, other than seeing God, who else does God want you to see? Yourself. God wants us to look into the mirror of His Word and see ourselves. So, no matter who we are, as we are reading God's Word God wants to speak to us personally, and he does it through his word. I was listening to a preacher yesterday. 
I can't. I think it might have been Mark Joe, but he was talking about a time uh, when he was doing missionary work in some foreign country. And uh, he said one day after service, I hear somebody yelling his name in that language. I forget what what they called him in that language, but he said I stopped and they said, well, you know, the guy was out of breath. Said Pastor Mark, you you got to pray for me. And he said, well, what what can I pray for? He said, pray that God will speak to me. I've been saved now for. Uh, over 10 years, and I don't believe God has ever spoken to me. So Pastor Mark said, I'm not going to pray that for you. Of course, the guy was shocked. And he said, what do you mean? He said, I'm here on missionary work, and I'm out of the country. My children are at home. I said, there's not a day goes by that I don't text them, email them, call them. I'm always communicating with them. And he said, what you need to realize is God is always communicating with you. So my prayer is not going to be, will God talk to you? My prayer is, will you listen when God talks? Are you willing to hear God speak? Because God speaks through His Word, and He really does. So again, God's Word being inspired. So you can't exhaust its content. And the third thing we started last week is how honest the writers of the Bible were. Now think about that. And that, you know... uh, to me, it's, it's, it's tremendously remarkable. I mean, when they wrote about anybody, they included all the details, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. Okay, we'll go there using a old movie term. And they did. They included that. But also, was kind of uh, one of the major themes or the outstanding, outstanding truths of God's Word of the Old Testament is the unity of God. Now, let me, let me, we talked about this a little bit last week. And the statement was very clear that God is one and there is no other God. So what does that mean? One more time. He's the one and only. There is no other I don't care how hard you look, there is no other. Go to Deuteronomy 6 4. Okay, the Lord our God. He's the one. And He is one Lord. And so that is one of the most outstanding truths of the Word of God. That's foundational. God is one and there is no other. He's our God. And the Bible is very clear. To go after any other God is idolatry. It is an awful, abhorrent sin in the eyes of God. In fact, it's a sin that God will not tolerate. There is no other God but Him. But what's interesting, as we are students of the Old Testament especially, you're going to find that over and over again, these writers... Cry out against the sin of idolatry. And it doesn't matter who's writing it. doesn't matter who they may be writing about at that time. Whoever's involved, if they're involved in idolatry, these writers call them out. They call them on the carpet and saying, what you're doing is wrong in the eyes of God. Exodus chapter 20, look at verses 2 through 6. Are you reading down through verse uh, 6? I'm sorry, I apologize, Phyllis. My eyes aren't working good tonight. Thank you, Phyllis, and I apologize for not giving the correct verses. But is God clear here? (laughs) 
You can't, exactly, you can't get much clearer than that. I am the Lord, your God. I am your God. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. And you will never, you should never have any other God before me. In fact, God says, don't even make any graven image. And don't make any image in the likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the water underneath. Don't bow down. Don't serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God. Can I ask you what's God, what is God's point here? I'm the only one. Do not serve any other God. Don't even make a graven image of anything else. Period. Except, except, there is no except, is there? Plain. You're right, Phil. couldn't say it any clearer than that. But remember, and again, Moses wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Over and over again, these writers, mostly Jewish ancestors, had Jewish ancestors, over and over again we read how even their own ancestors didn't obey this command of God. And not only their ancestors, they also preached the age they lived in, the contemporary age, were still people filled with idolatry. Now think about that. God was against it, and his men preached against it as well. Now we mentioned this last week, and we got started on a little bit here. Uh, even a few of those that would be considered somewhat famous, I don't know if you want to call them a hero or not, but they committed the sin of idolatry. Aaron and the golden calf. Think about that. We talked about him last week. Solomon. Uh, again, the uh, unwise wise man. and uh, But also Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom. And, and what's interesting, no matter who was writing about idolatry, no matter who they were writing about caught up in it, they never once tried to make excuses. But they always, without exception, condemned them openly for what they were doing. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament at all, uh, <clears throat> what do you think? Uh, how do you think that make uh, the response was a lot of times to the people they preached to? Not good. The people didn't want to hear the truth. Deuteronomy chapter 17, look at verses 2 through 5. Thank you, Dan. I suppose that my question here is, first of all, was God serious about this sin? And how serious was he? Say it again. Yeah, to the death. Now, I don't mean to be political here, but God believed in capital punishment. And there was no way to get around it. God said if they're caught in that thing, he calls an abomination. 
doesn't matter, man or woman, which has done that, God says you're going to stone them with stones till what? Till they're dead. Until they are dead. Now, we kind of touched on this a little bit last week, but we know that uh, for the most part, um, human historians, especially if they have a favorite one they're trying to cover, uh, they may try to conceal some of the faults. Just talk about the good things in their life. Not so with the Scripture. Uh, And certainly, if this were written by men, uh, and not inspired by God, along with that, uh, we would think they would try to at least um, expand on the virtues of who they're writing about. I mean, these are Jewish people writing about Jewish men and women. Uh, so uh, they certainly wouldn't want to mar their uh, reputation, um, and they certainly wouldn't want to dig to uncover any vices, especially to... Uh, Someone that should be looked up to. So, again, very, very honest in what they said. Now, that doesn't mean they liked what was going on. They were just telling the truth. Here's what God's people are doing. People that should know better. People that should not be doing that. And so, again, that's another uh, evidence of how unique God's word, his scripture is, even in history. Uh, because, without a doubt, Old Testament writers told both the good and the bad of those they wrote about. And again, that's unique of the, of the Scripture. And so, again, you know, uh, we know that Moses and other writers wrote uh, the Bible claims by divine inspiration. And certainly it must have been, because they did not try to hide the truth. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, certainly the sin of idolatry... Uh, probably the worst of which Israel was guilty, that was not the only thing that was evil about them. And we find other evil things recorded uh, against them throughout the the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, their whole history is simply one long repeated story of apostasy from Jehovah their God. Over and over and over and over again. Now I need to ask you a question. Uh, had any other nation been treated the way that God treated them? No. The things that God did for them, and you get in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah, some of Jeremiah, uh, some of the minor prophets, and you'll find that God says, I found you when you were a baby. When, when you were still covered with the afterbirth and you were about to die in the desert, and I took you in my arms, and, I cra- and I'm paraphrasing, of course, and I cradled you, and I taught you to walk. And I've been with you all this time. And God says in one place, bring some charges again. Tell me what I've done wrong. Tell me how I've wronged you. But guess what? They couldn't. And yet their history was over and over again, repeated apostasy. Let's go back to Exodus, Exodus again, chapter 12. And look at the time when they were liberated from Egypt. We, uh, we preached from chapter 12 of Exodus on Sunday this past. We didn't get this far. But look at verse 31 uh, down to verse 36. Read 36 too, please.
Thank you, Phyllis. Now, most of you have read uh, the plague that there were ten altogether. Nine had happened. And the last plague was when the firstborn from every family died, including their cattle. And what did that, what did that do to Egypt? Yeah, it broke them. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. And he said, get out of here. Leave my people. Say it again, Phyllis. We've had enough. Now, by the way, if you read the story, his cabinet warned him earlier about this. Hey, we, we can't win this thing. I'm paraphrasing. You need to give in. Pharaoh refused. But this time they said, we've had enough. Now, here's what's interesting. You remember the times of Joseph. That's when they came in. Between 70 and 75 Jews. That's all there were. That's it. I mean, can, can you believe a nation started from that? And they're there, you know, for about 300 years. And now they've grown to probably at least 3 million people. And uh, the last, I don't know how many years, they were now slaves. They weren't welcome there anymore. And uh, every time they turned around, Pharaoh was harder on them. And you, you know the story. And remember, they came in with what? In back 70, you know, 300 years ago, basically. Nothing. They didn't own any land. They were there as guests. But God had already promised. I'll push, he told Abraham, they'll be, in, they'll be there for a while. But they'll come out a great people, a wealthy people. So, notice this. And verse 20, 35, the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians. Now, wait a minute. Now, that's uh, the King James Version. Jason, do you have yours in front of you there? Does it use the word borrowed? Verse 35. You need to put your glasses back on. They did what now? Okay, oh, they asked for it, okay. Um, again, asked for it. When I, when I think of the word borrowed, what, what does that mean? You're going to give it back. Does that fit here? Why not? <laughs> They're not going to give it back. They're going. And they asked for it, okay. But think about this. Verse 36, the key. God is the one who gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So whatever they asked for, guess what? They got. Sure, they were afraid of them. Yeah. Absolutely. And especially in this situation, I mean, every family's lost the firstborn. Everyone. So let's get these people out of here. And what do they ask for? Give it to them. But the Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So by the miracle of God, by the hand of God, he liberated them from Egypt. Not long after they've been liberated, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he decides to go after them. Chapter 14, look at verse 10 and 11. Thank you, Dan. All of a sudden, they look in their rearview mirror. Who do they see? 
the Egyptian army. And who are they mad at now? Moses. Is this your idea, Moses? You bring us out here so we can do what? Die in the desert. Why are you doing this to us? Now let's stop for a minute here. I would love to be critical of the Jews here, the Israelites, but I see myself here. Forgetting what? God is my God. And with my God, there's nothing impossible. And whatever he does is for his glory and my good. Whether I understand it or not makes no matter. And the sad thing is, if you're like me, a lot of times God doesn't meet our expectation. And I heard a preacher say that, something about that, either this week or last week, one. And I thought, man, he's right. The problem is not God. The problem is our expectation was wrong. Isn't that true? Our expectation was wrong. No. Step by step. Yes, he will. And that's why if we've committed to him, we know he'll bring it to fruition. So let's camper just for a second. Who brought them out of Egypt? God did. Who gave them favor with the Egyptians? God did. And I think about this, and again, I I see myself here because I can see myself doing the same thing. Why would I think for a moment, if God has already done this much, why is he going to stop now? And especially here with the nation of Israel, God had a plan for them people. And God would have carried out. And I want to tell you something, folks. If Pharaoh would have called all of his allies together, they'd all been dead. God was not going to let it happen. But instead of trusting God, all they could see was their situation. I've been there. How about you? All I could see was my situation. Chapter 14, again, of Exodus. Go down to verse 30 and 31. Did you see? Did you hear what you just read, Phyllis? The Bible says that these people, these Jews, Israelites, they feared God and they believed God and they believed Moses. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it didn't last long. So they've been delivered from Egypt. Delivered at the Red Sea, and they begin their journey to the Promised Land. But between where they were and the Promised Land was a long trek across the wilderness. Now, by the way, if you didn't know this for sure, we know it took them 40 years, but if they hadn't have sinned, it was an 11-day journey. Okay, from Egypt to the promised land. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what you get. But what's interesting, during that journey, God is going to reveal to the Jews, to the Israelites, the depravity of their hearts. And my friend, it was on full display. Forget about that God had overthrown their enemies. Forget about how he had plainly demonstrated he was their God. 
But no sooner had they began that journey, their faith was tested and their hearts failed them. Exodus 15, verse 22 through 24. I don't know how long they stayed near the Red Sea. We're not told. I don't think very long at all. But they travel three days' journey, and they're out of water. Now, I, I confess, that's not a good thing, is it? And if you got three million people to thirst, you guess what? That's a lot of people. Yeah. And the Bible says, and they, they begin to murmur against Moses, what shall we drink? Again, let's consider what's going on here. God had delivered him from the nation of Egypt out of the country, drowned Pharaoh and his army, delivered them from the Red Sea, and now they're wondering what? What are we going to drink? Now again, I can understand that. But it shows the depravity of our hearts. The God who's been too good to them so far, what he, is he going to stop? No, but we think he will. Look what God does, verse 25, Exodus 15. Thank you, Phyllis. So God says, Moses, go and grab that tree. I have a question. Do you think the tree was a miracle? Who made the difference? God did. But the waters became sweet. So again, who took care of them? God did. Next chapter, 16, verses 2 and 3. Deja vu all over again, right? Now they're out of food. And again, come on. Three million hungry people wouldn't be fun, would it? So their food supplies began to give out. And they were certainly afraid they were going to perish from hunger. But here's what happens if we're not careful. Trying circumstances will banish the living God from our thoughts. Rather than focus on Him, we focus on what? Our problem. So they complained and they murmured against Moses. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? I mean, there we, we could at least eat Every day we had, didn't say it here, but they had leeks and melons and the flesh pots. But my question is, what were they crying for when they were in Egypt? We want out. But now they're out. You should have left us in there, Moses. <laughs> yeah. Verse 8, chapter 16, Lord intervened. Look what it says. Thank you. 
Amen. Aren't you glad that God doesn't deal with us after our sins? Aren't you glad for God's grace? And they should have been. Because the Bible says in his mercy he gave them bread from heaven. And he furnished a daily supply of manna. Now, of course, we're reading in the book of Exodus. And we know that by the time we get to the book of Numbers, they're tired of the manna. I mean, they've boiled it, they've baked it, they've fried it, they've barbecued it, any which way you can think of, okay? And they said basically what? We're sick of this stuff. And they murmured against God. That's what God says here in Exodus 2. Moses said, you're not, you're not complaining against me and Aaron. You're complaining against God. You're complaining against God. And so, again, here in Exodus, they, they are dissatisfied with the manna. And they left after the flesh pots of Egypt. And still, God <laughs> deals with them in grace. Who we? I'm glad I'm not God. And I'd be glad you're not God, right? Because we wouldn't show that kind of grace, but God did. Well, here we go. No water again. Exodus 17, the first two verses. So we see it happening again, not long after God gave them food to eat. They're refed him now. And the Bible says there was no water there for them to drink. They blamed Moses, demanded water. In fact, they were so angry they threatened to stone him. And Moses said, why are you complaining to me? Why are you tempting the Lord? Now remember, if God wanted to, could he have zapped them people? Sure he could have. But his anger did not consume them. He didn't refuse to bear with his stiff-necked people He forgave them. But the problem is their hearts haven't changed. Exodus 17, look at verses 5 and 6. Thank you. God gives Moses some instructions. Take some elders of Israel, stand before this rock. God says, I will stand there with you. And I want you to take that rod and I want you to smite that. I want you to strike that rock. So what happened? You what now? Okay, he struck the rock, but what happened then? Water came out. Yeah. Enough water for what? Three million people. That's a lot of water. And not just the people. 
They're animals. The sad thing is, and we've only taken a couple, two or three, what we've read so far tonight were typical and illustrated the general conduct of God's people. Yes, even us today. Like I said, when you read God's Word, see yourself in there. Go to number 13. Thank you, Dan. God said, I want you to take one man from every tribe. So how many men would that be? Twelve. Twelve tribes, twelve men. And Moses said, go out and spy the land. See what kind of people live there. See about the towns, are they fortified or what. Check out the fruit, the food of the land. And when you do all that, come back and give me a full report. Tell us what you found. Twelve go, twelve come back. Ten had one story, two had another story. What were their stories? Yeah. Ten said, yeah. We can do it. So here's what happened. First of all, would you agree they all saw the same thing? Sure they did. But ten of them magnified the difficulties they were going to face. And they said, you know what? Let's don't do it. Joshua and Jacob said, now wait a minute. What they're saying is true. But they're forgetting who's on our side. God is. And and God will deliver us or deliver them into our hands. I mean, the God we serve, He's the mighty God. He's God Almighty. And God could whip all those people with one hand behind His back. That's not in there, but it's close. We have no reason not to go in. But they wouldn't listen. The ten won out. Now, by the way, just to insert a little bit here, you know that once Moses told him the penalty of that, they said, we're going to go in now. And Moses said, oh, don't do that. Because if you go in now, you'll surely get defeated. And guess what happened? They were defeated. So over and over again, for 40 years, they provoked God. And because of that, a whole generation perished in the wilderness. Surely, when they get to the promised land, It'll be different. Joshua 23, verse 1. Joshua 23, verse 1. No, that's good. That's what I wanted. I'm sorry. I'm just just trying to think here. I have trouble doing that sometimes. Those that were 20 years and under had died out, over had died out. And now that succeeding generation was grown, 
Joshua leads them to the promised land with the help of God. And by now they've overthrown many of their enemies. And they occupied much of the land. But after Joshua died, look what happens. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Thank you, Dan. So what, what happened when, when that generation died out, when Joshua was gone? So basically what had changed? Nothing. Nothing had changed. Now I know it says this new generation didn't know, didn't know the Lord. They didn't, all the works that he had done for Israel. And to a point that was true. They hadn't seen it with their own eyes. But I have no doubt they were told it. Because that was common to pass that on through word of mouth. So there you have it. <laughs> Coming out of Egypt at the Red Sea, when they ran out of food, out of water, and they make it to the promised land. And we enter the period of the judges. And the Bible says they forsook the Lord. They served Baal and Ashtaroth. And they provoked God to anger. The period of the judges is about 300 years. And there were probably, I don't know, about 12 judges. And when we think of a judge, don't think of the judge like we have today with the robe on. It's not that kind of a judge. It would be a deliverer, a conqueror of some kind. And the people would sin against God. God would allow the enemy to come in and put the Jews under pressure, put their thumb on the Jews, on the Israelites. They would repent. God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, and deliver them. And then what happened? Go back to the same thing again. Over and over and over again. (laughs) They departed from him. God would deliver them from their enemies. They would go back to unfaithfulness. And God, again, would deliver them when they repented. But the cycle would go over and over and over again. Now remember, we're looking at evidences of this book being inspired. Now, first of all, and I realize that Moses came before Abraham, but they're all part of God's plan. So these writers were Jewish writers, and they're writing the story of their own people. Isn't that true? And so do you see them glossing over their history? No. Do you find them saying all was well? And they lived happily ever after? No. Now think about this. If this book was written solely by human authors, that's not how they would have written it. They'd have told part of the truth, 
But they certainly would have included all of this apostasy. That's exactly right. They would have just used the human side of it. But no, it's inspired by God. So the next time somebody says to you, well, I know the Bible says in Timothy's inspired, or maybe you tell them they don't know that you tell them that, and they would say to you, well, you can, the Bible can say anything. But look at the evidence. There's no other book like this. Growing up, I'm about 40 years younger than Rick Martin is, give or take. Right, Rick? I don't know. I'm kidding. But, you know, growing up, we, we used to watch some little westerns as a kid. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the names of them now. Kit Carson was one of them, you know. Uh, while Will Hickok, we'd read about him. And, boy, they were glamorous, weren't they? The story you read. But as you get older and you begin to, to read the true history about them, what do you find out? <laughs> Somebody embellished a little bit, right? They made them look better than they were. And then you find out, for the most part, a lot of them are scoundrels anyway, at the heart. Because that's how human writers do things. But we don't see that in the Word of God. One example, and we'll, we'll close with this tonight, because we're going to talk about the kings next week, under the king's time. Uh, David, for example. The Bible describes him as a man after what? God's own heart. And you would think, what about David? Yeah, man, he's up here. But we know what David did. He committed adultery and he committed murder. Now, i got to tell you, I'd have left that page out. But God doesn't. And this, this evidence that the Word of God is inspired. Any comment or question before we stop for prayer tonight? Any comment or question? And folks...